0: The Edition is sponsored by Charles Stanley, one of the UK's leading wealth managers, providing bespoke investment management and financial advice. Find out more at charles-stanley.co.uk.
1: Hello and welcome to The Edition, the Spectator's weekly podcast discussing some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. This week, as the government starts to looking at easing the lockdown, how much do we still not know about this virus? Also on the podcast, have Joe Biden and the Democrats been caught applying double standards? And at the very end, the upside of lockdown for new parents. In this week's cover piece, Matt Ridley writes about the problem with taming the virus. Matt joins me now, together with Dr Elisabetta Grappelli, who is a virologist at St George's University, London. Matt, I think the problem you describe can be neatly summed up by your opening line in a magazine. We know everything about SARS-CoV-2 and nothing about it. Can you tell us about this COVID fog?
2: Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's puzzling, isn't it, that we can be so good at knowing its molecular biology, its genome sequence, what its genes are, how many there are, what they do, and yet we don't really understand how it's spreading. We don't understand the epidemiology nearly well enough. We don't know whether... Uh, young people are passing it on. It seems like they possibly are not very much. I mean, why are some countries seeing big epidemics and others not? Uh, Why isn't it exploding in India and Africa, which many people feared it would would do? There are all sorts of things we don't know about it. uh, And that's the fog that we have to act in. But we can't wait for knowing a lot before we act.
1: Elisabetta, one of the things that we've heard a lot about is the science. As a scientist yourself, what do you make of that phrase? Yes, science is a, is a word that
3: we use a lot, but I think we use it in a very different meanings. Sometimes we, we just mean the scientific community, sometimes we mean the, actually just a scientific method. Other times we just mean the raw data that we actually need to put into a context and, and build a, a scenario. And uh, I think I think as scientists we are a bit guilty of uh, you know taking some some shortcuts when it comes to just using the word science and we need a little bit to be a little bit careful about actually what we mean with it and uh, being particularly open about that the, the fact that uh, most of the times, science and scientists, what we are doing is, uh, is looking at the natural blank canvas and come up with a scenario that we need to test. And so the starting point is very much not knowing much or
1: actually not knowing at all. And Elisabetta, knowing a little bit more now uh, at this stage than we did a couple of weeks ago, Matt writes in his piece that Britain's failure to ramp up testing has been its biggest mistake. Would you agree with that? So, when it comes to to this virus or these viruses. Testing is uh,
3: what allows you to see where the virus is. This virus uh, or pathogens have been called the invisible enemy. But the reality is that uh, we can start lifting some of the fog and sort of putting on these superhero glasses uh, to see where the virus is in in a community, or geographically, but also in what parts of of our society is, simply by looking for evidence of the virus. And we do have these capabilities uh, which is testing which is the molecular testing and unfortunately it is a little bit of a difficult test to to perform but not impossible and i think there has been potentially an underestimation by the uk authorities about not only the importance of of testing but also the amount of effort that was required to actually build up the capacity that was going to help tackling the virus
1: Matt, a huge part of your piece also focuses on what is called nosocomial infection. I don't know if I've said that right, but that's infection that happens within hospitals. What do we know about hospital infections and why is it such an important consideration?
2: Well, I think this goes back to the testing issue that Elisabetta is talking about, because it's clear that countries that got testing done widespread first and early on, like Germany, did much better than countries that did not, like Britain. And yet it's not obvious. I mean, a test doesn't cure the disease. It doesn't save your life. It doesn't necessarily even stop you passing it on because you might have passed it on before you got tested. So why would testing make such a difference? And I think the key is because testing enabled some countries to keep this virus out of their hospital and and home care systems and particularly out of healthcare workers because if we weren't testing healthcare workers sufficiently early on in this country then there was a risk that they would give it to more patients already in hospital some of those patients were discharged back into care homes they took it with them they weren't tested when they went and of course it's the elderly who die from this disease nearly always what we've seen is an epidemic running through the hospitals and care homes that hasn't been nearly as problematic in Japan, South Korea and Germany. They've managed to keep it out of the healthcare system.
1: What's particularly fascinating about that point Matt is that you you highlight this Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine study. Can you tell us what it says and what does it mean?
2: This was a a study by Gabriela Gomez and and colleagues at Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, who have said, look, if old people are not only more likely to die from the disease, but also much more likely to pass it on, that their transmission rate is much higher because they get higher viral loads and they they cough out more of the virus, uh, then it automatically follows that other people are less likely to, to pass it on. And so it could be that in a community of young people, the virus just simply isn't capable of spreading effectively. So what is the level of herd immunity that we need if we can keep it out of the elderly and the hospital and healthcare system? Uh, And the suggestion is it could be as low as 10% of people would have to be immune before that would slow it down. So they're saying that because the virus is not very efficient at spreading among younger people, and we've seen a, a case of a boy who who came back from skiing with it and gave it to none of his 170 contacts, then uh, herd immunity is within reach at quite a low level Uh, in the rest of the community if we can keep it out of where it's hitting elderly people.
1: Elizabetta, as a 20-something-year-old myself, obviously I'm jumping at optimism (laughs) that this study might be right. What What do you make of it? Could it be the case that some parts of the population are just less infectious and therefore does that follow that we should be allowed out earlier?
3: Uh, well, I, I certainly you know, would hope so that uh, everybody actually should be allowed uh, um, out early. Uh, what we know is from the data that we have and also the really interesting data from countries like Italy is that, uh, yes, young people do seem to uh, fare better in the sense that uh, the attention has always been on the symptoms and hospitalizations and intensive care unit admissions and, of course, death. And if we look at this important data and the 40s, actually, not just the, the, the 20 years old like, like yourself, are actually very, very uh, little represented in this uh, in these groups. So that is really good news. However, we do know that infection, the virus, does circulate uh, uh, in these age groups. And therefore, there's still the contribution of these age groups uh, to transmission to the more vulnerable age groups, so the, the older ones. And so I think uh, this is where, uh, as a side, So, you know, I'm going to use the the unfortunate, a bit frustrating sentence, which is, it's good, it's interesting, it's a good starting point, but we don't know as much. (laughs) And uh, certainly we need to gather more data about this. And it's it's about individuals, you know, age groups and also about the virus and then big population studies uh, to actually start informing policy in a solid way.
1: And Matt, with mass testing now, even though the government has not consistently hit its 100,000 target, but movements on a test, track and trace approach, including an app, do you think Britain has turned a corner in its response to coronavirus?
2: Well, I very much hope it does, because I think what the evidence is showing, and of course, this is through the fog, as as Elizabeth quite rightly reminds us, what the evidence is showing is that the way to fight this virus is with testing, tracking and tracing, not with total lockdowns total lockdowns have huge downsides economic as well as health downsides and are extremely painful for for many people Uh, and it looks like we could have avoided them as sweden has mostly done if we had done more testing tracking and tracing from the start and i think our big mistake was to abandon that strategy in march now we are geared up with as you say a lot of testing capacity the ability to track and trace which is being developed And with certain voluntary but sensible rules about social distancing, about not shaking hands, about washing your hands a lot, about keeping your distance from people, about not gathering in large groups, that plus test, track and trace, I think means that it really should be possible to keep this virus suppressed indefinitely. And we may not even get a second wave, but that does depend upon glimmers of knowledge through the fog and we might find out other things that make that a wrong suggestion.
1: Matt and Elizabeth, thanks very much.
2: Try four weeks of The
4: Spectator absolutely free. And, for this month only, you'll receive a Spectator wireless phone charger. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash charger.
1: Next, it's common knowledge that Joe Biden is a bit of a touchy-feely kind of guy, but this month allegations have arisen they accuse him of doing something much more severe. A former staffer, Tara Reid, says that he sexually assaulted her in the 1990s. Freddie Gray writes about the Democrats' dilemma in this week's issue, and he joins me on the podcast now, together with Karen Robinson, host of the podcast Democratically 2020 and former chair of Democrats UK. So Freddie, can you tell us about the dilemma that Biden and the Democrats find themselves in?
4: Uh, Well, it puts Biden in a particular dilemma because he went along with the believe all women mantra when it applied to Christine Blasey Ford, who accused Brett Kavanaugh, who was um, Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominee, of sexual assault. And so when it was convenient for Biden and the Democrats to believe a claim, they did. And now it applies to Biden, and a lot of people dismissed it out of hand as a political hit job. So it reveals a sort of disgusting double standard among the Democrats. And of course, Republicans are enjoying that hypocrisy quite a lot, and it puts Biden in trouble.
1: Karen, you didn't support Biden as nominee, but you are a Democrat. What is your reaction to the allegation? Well, any
0: allegation of sexual assault is disturbing, worrying, troubling, has to be taken seriously. And I would say that, I mean, this is a really tough issue because it is really important that women who come forward to tell their stories are listened to, are heard respectfully. And I think the Biden campaign's approach to this has been welcoming investigations calling for more investigations. They have flatly denied the allegations and said nothing like this ever happened. And they've been calling for journalists and and various entities to do more digging in. And they've released, they've called, there's this kind of funny dispute going on where they're asking the the Senate to release their personnel papers from the time Tara Reid worked for him. And the Senate has so far not been willing to do that. So there's the negotiation going on. So I think, in some ways, we're still at the beginning of this, Story, and I think what's been what's been actually somewhat encouraging to me as somebody who has long been concerned about the ways that women who come forward are are treated in public life is that actually I disagree with Freddie. I don't think she's been dismissed out of hand. Certainly, some people have dismissed her out of hand, and there's a strong tendency by partisans on both sides to always want to believe people uh, want to believe the people on their side. But I think what I've been encouraged by is that. The reporting has been quite factual. It has been digging into it. There are some kind of f- aspects of her story that might or might not have evidence behind them. So there's been a real focus on trying to find out, did she file the reports that she said she did, speaking to people who knew her at the time and just trying to get to the truth in that way. Freddie?
4: I think, I think she was dismissed out of hand until it became such a big problem that she couldn't be. I think that's sort of inevitable. That's, that's how it works. I don't necessarily blame the Democrats for that but i think it's certainly true that a lot of a lot of senior politicians a lot of people who want to be close to biden as he approaches the election sided with him immediately i believe joe became the hashtag when <laughs> You know, when the hashtag before was, I believe, you know, believe all women. I mean, the well, point actually is it believe it all believe women, women is a, not is a, believe
0: all women. I mean, which it, is it a used to be believe you know, all women. No, it was never a believe all women, but it doesn't matter. It, yes the point was. is women should be listened to, heard respectfully. You know, it's this is this is not the kind of conversation that works well when you play it out in a purely partisan context for some of the reasons we just talked about. And so this is very, very difficult to get to the truth in situations where everybody's strongly motivated to have one point of
4: view. I mean I'm I mean I I admire you for, for for trying but I I just think it's a bit um I mean it's a case of bite a bitten isn't it because the democrats did weaponize a sexual assault allegation in the case of Brett Kavanaugh and now they find it come back to the bite a bitten it's come back to bite them bite a bitten I think
0: so so what's interesting to me what I think is important is that women who come forward and this is exactly what I and many other Democrats said for Christine Blasey Ford, and I will say the same thing for Tara Reid, whose story I want to hear more about. They need to be listened to respectfully. They need to be made to feel comfortable coming forward. And we need to then have those conversations. Now, that's exactly what the Biden campaign has called for. Now, yes, they were too quick to dismiss some of the things she said. But equally, I think the difference between the way Donald Trump has handled sexual assault allegations against him, of which, of course, there are many, and the way the Biden campaign has handled it is that the Trump campaign has insulted and belittled the women themselves and has called for investigations to be shut down. The Biden campaign has made no personal attacks on the woman in question and has called for more investigations, which I think is a sign not only of the differences between Biden and Trump as people, but also the Democrats as a movement and the Republicans as a movement in terms of how they deal with this issue.
1: Freddie, I suppose that's part of the problem for Trump at the moment, isn't it? I mean, as much as the Republicans revel in the sort of allegations that are coming out, Trump can't push it too far because it would be like the pot calling the kettle black.
4: Well, I mean, possibly. I I, I mean, I, I think, you know, I think th- there's too much going on at the moment for this to become a kind of Me Too election. And as I tried to say in the piece, I think, you know, Biden's actually been doing quite well because of his anonymity. And the usual rules of politics are being sort of turned upside down. And so sort of his very lack of engagement, his very lack of ability to generate publicity because he's stuck in lockdown like everyone else actually helps Biden because... He's a pretty flawed candidate in many ways. And, and I mean, it's, it's embarrassing to see his sort of dial in video link, as one Republican consultant put it to me, called them proof of life appearances. It's, it, I mean, they're pretty embarrassing and sort of cringe, but really nobody notices them. And so as a result, by being the not Trump at a time where Trump is widely perceived to be not handling things very well, Biden is winning.
1: And Karen, that's reflected in the polling as well, isn't it? I mean, it seems that Biden is still leading in the polls. Do you think that's because polls historically underestimate Trump's appeal? Or is it tapping into a real lead from Biden here? Well, Biden is doing very well in the polling, which is not entirely new.
0: I mean, Joe Biden has always looked like the candidate who was best fit, specifically in the the critical swing states, the states like Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, even places like Arizona, Florida, Georgia, we're starting to see Biden coming out ahead. And that's because I think demographically, he suits non-college educated white voter demographic that's overrepresented in those states really well. And I also think that the, the president's handling of the coronavirus crisis has been very unpopular with the public and so that's probably more on people's mind right now than anything that, that Biden could ever say or do. And and rightly so. I mean, this is the, the single most important issue that's affecting all of us right now, whatever else may be going on. I will also say that I think the president's handling of of all issues to do with, with women's issues, respect and integrity for women, does not give women voters a lot of confidence, to say the least. He has been dismissive, belittling, insulting, unkind personally to women and also has been very bad for women on policy grounds. Whereas Joe Biden, whilst we still need to litigate these questions about his personal behavior, um, and I think we need to litigate them seriously, he also has a record of, being an advocate for and a, you know, kind of early sponsor for and long standing proprietor for the, the violence against women act, he's been really engaged on issues of campus sexual assault and violence. So if purely on a policy grounds, you were voting purely on women's issues, and that's what you cared about, then Biden would definitely be the better choice. And I think on personal behavior, if you choose between these two, there is no comparison between them, even if it turned out, which I hope it doesn't, that these allegations are true. So there's a a lot of factors that we have to consider as we, uh, you know, as a woman and as a Democrat, there are a lot of compelling reasons for me to continue to support Joe Biden, you know, especially as we continue to kind of try to get to the truth of what happened 30 years ago.
4: I think it's, it's, it's worth remembering too that Biden's campaign almost sort of collapsed at the beginning over a sort of sleaze allegation of the, the creepy Joe idea, because there was all these pictures of him being very handsy and sort of sniffing women's hair and things like that. I, I mean, I don't think he's a pervert or anything. I mean, we don't have any evidence of that. I just think he's odd and he's very odd physically. And I've, I've seen it. I've, I've seen Biden in person a few times. And uh, he is, he's odd with people. He does hold on to them for a weird amount of time. He's just a sort of strange guy, I think.
1: Freddie, you talk about how some in the Democratic Party, you know, are looking to ditch Biden if they possibly can. Is that a realistic hope?
4: Uh, I think there's a lot of people would like on the particularly on the left of the party would like to ditch Biden. They're not very happy with it. And now they're, they're seeking to use this claim to get him out. And I I just think it's sort of disgusting. I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I think it's very good to have sort of high minded ideas about sexual equality. But the fact is, this is politics and it gets it gets dirty very quickly. And if if the right people in the party can use the allegations to get Biden out, they will. I don't think they have the ability to do it. And I don't think Biden's shown any sign of wanting to give up the nomination. So I don't think it will happen.
1: Karen, if it does manifest that Biden did do this, what would that mean for your vote? Would you still support him? Would you support still support the Democrats in the upcoming elections?
0: Well, there are no circumstances in which I would consider voting for Donald Trump. So that that, you know, that answers that part of the question. I would What about be, abstaining? I will never not vote. It's my it's my duty and and right as a citizen to cast my vote. And you have to make a choice. I would be very surprised if it turned out that all of the allegations were were true as described. But I'm open minded to the fact that something clearly happened to Tara Reid. And I want to know more about about that. But in terms of my vote, I mean, Donald Trump is, is a danger to women, and he's a danger to the country. I take that very seriously. And I take my responsibility to stop that very seriously. So yeah, that's not that's not a problem for me. It's clear. In terms in terms of the question of of whether it's still possible for someone else to take the nomination i think that's extremely unlikely i mean there is still a mechanism for it if the party party decided that Biden was, for whatever reason, not a viable candidate. Delegates can change their votes during the convention if they so choose. That seems wildly improbable and extremely unlikely to happen, especially since we haven't yet seen anything like evidence of this allegation coming to the fore that would confirm it. It's theoretically possible. I think it would tear the party apart, and I think that would make it very hard for us to
1: win in November. Freddie and Karen, thanks very much. And last... Lara Prendergast hasn't been hosting this podcast in the last few months, and that's because she's just had a baby. In this week's issue, she writes about the lockdown as a new parent, and something she's learned about, called postpartum confinement. Lara joins me down the line now, together with Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement, who has a young family himself. So Lara, can you tell us about what you found out about postpartum confinement, or lying in? Well, it was a concept I hadn't really come across. I mean, I gave birth to my daughter,
5: Lily, just before the lockdown happened. And during my pregnancy, one of the midwives, a Spanish midwife, had mentioned to me that in a lot of Latin American countries, they have this concept of la quarantina, or postpartum confinement, where women spend up to sort of 40 days, and even actually longer, just at home, doing nothing, resting, eating well, not seeing anyone after they give birth. And I I was sort of interested in this because it's kind of what I ended up doing anyway after Boris Johnson announced the lockdown. And the concept of lying in, I discovered, was actually something that used to be quite prominent in the British medical system. And until the 1970s, a lot of maternity hospitals were known as lying in hospitals, lying in because the women would just spend time in bed, resting, getting to grips with motherhood. And yeah, I suppose in this in this week's piece, I say that whilst if you'd said to me when as soon as I gave birth I'd be doing that, I would have you know laughed in your face. But actually, it ended up being quite a, <laughs> quite a good thing for me, I think. And just kind of just taking a bit of time hasn't been a bad start to
1: motherhood. And Stig, as a father of three young children, would something like confinement have helped you and your wife in the early days?
6: I don't think it's the idea of conf- when you hear it, it, it sounds so kind of anti-feminist, doesn't it? The sort of thing that the <laughs> women are sort of con- are confined, they're sort of pushed away and secluded. But I, I do remember that my son, who is my second child, was born in very difficult circumstances. My wife nearly died and it was it was, was 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 saved and was fine and was put in a, in a ward and then was on her own with with uh, my son. And normally spoke to her for 20 odd hours and she was lying in bed And apart from me coming in, there was no one else really uh, around. And I remember talking to her afterwards and saying, how was the night time with you? And she kept saying, she just felt this amazing feeling of being alone with her baby, that she could feel this sort of connection developing, the idea of it being the two of them against the world, the two of them together. And whenever we talk about this horrendous experience the birth itself and, and all of that, she always her eyes light up and talks about this amazing feeling of being with her baby afterwards. So I do totally get the idea that the world is full of noise and busyness and, and well-meaning people uh, as well, of course. But the idea of, it, of concentrating the essence of it down to just you and your baby, uh, I, I think feels, it feels rather moving to me, actually.
1: Laura, Stig mentioned there that it just doesn't feel very feminine to just shove women away and put them in a closet
5: somewhere. I mean, I and that was initially my thought Like when the midwife mentioned it, I was like, that's insane. Also, the implication being that women are somehow kind of fragile and need to be kept away from society when they recover from from what is often quite a traumatic experience in childbirth. So yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And um, my sort of conception of what you know being kind of the early days of motherhood would be like were that I'd be out and about. I, I mean, I'd bought all this kind of equipment, you know, the pram that can go on an aeroplane, the breast <laughs> pump that connects to your phone to tell you how much you're pumping, like all of that stuff, which supposedly was meant to mean I could kind of get out and about. And, and it has, you know, been useful when I go to the shop every so often. But yeah, it's not, it's not a very feminist. But at the same time, I think it's quite pro women and quite pro the -the baby, really, because it has just given us the time to kind of settle into life and not feel any pressure to perform, to kind of live up to these standards that, you know, that women are now expected to of kind of having it all getting on with, you know, a job, baby, family life. So, I mean, in a way, it isn't very feminist, but I found it sort of bizarrely liberating (laughs) at the same
1: time. And I suppose part of it is that social aspect of new parenthood and just family life in general. Stigami, so, mean, Lara talks about how she would have felt bad turning away the well wishes in her article. Do you identify with that?
6: Uh, ab- absolutely. I mean, I'm a very antisocial person, so I could be the wrong person uh, <laughs> to, uh, 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 to ask about that. But and actually, I feel there's kind, of, there's kind of room, there's three things in life, there's sort of friends, family and work, and you can only really do two of them well, I think. Uh, and I think never more so when you 've got when you 've got a little one and and I do think there 's that feeling of 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 solidarity of your family becoming when you have the your first baby and and, and thereafter the smallest unit is your family and it feels like it 's you together i think that 's such a great feeling and, and the idea of sort of people delivering cake is, is is nice and and people coming around but my experience of all of the 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 very young uh, when the, when the babies were born is you're always looking at a clock when someone comes around to say, "Okay, thank you, very nice, but can you can you please leave so i can so I can get back to try because you're always just trying to control the situation you're trying to make sure your baby's okay, making sure that they're you know when they're sleeping they're not being disturbed, making sure that you can do the things you want to do and actually anything external comes to that is often either a distraction or a delay or a pain, so as a a chartered member of the anti-social institute I, I think I think I think being away from people is a great thing and also you're not away from people it, when we're looking at it you're not away from people you're with your family and that's that's actually a, a very pleasant place to be.
5: I think also it's been a slightly strange start for Lily because every, every person she seems to have met is via kind of zoom or house party and you know we've tried <laughs> we've tried to make sure that everyone's seen her and I mean, this, I suppose the saddest part really has been that like our immediate family haven't really been able to see her, so we've we've been sending lots of videos of her growing. But uh, yeah, I mean, it is it, it's sort of a double-edged double-edged sword, really, because on the one hand we do want to be introducing her to people, but at the same time it is quite nice just having a bit of time just to ourselves.
6: I also feel that with my with my two-year-old, uh, not quite two-year-old, she's twenty-two months. Is she's got uh, parents are always there and a brother and sister who are older. And she never sees anyone else at all, of course. So I kind of feel developmentally, it's really good for her. She never hangs out with, with two-year-olds. She only hangs out with people older <laughs> than her. And I've noticed, she's ta- you know, her talking's just accelerated and her whole life is narrow in the sense of she only looks 10 yards away from her at any one point. So she doesn't even know kind of lockdown exists or might be a problem. It just feels like everything's concentrated together close to her. And I see her every day, and she feels she's getting she feels happier and happier every day the lockdown uh, goes past because there's there's nothing else other than her and her family, and I think I think she likes that.
1: In general, Steve, how has um, lockdown been for you and your family?
6: Uh, I, I I talked to my wife about this, and she would say that the highs are definitely higher and the lows are a bit lower. So I think there's there's moments where you just think we can't carry on with this. So my daughter's eleven; she's just in her last year of primary school. My son is eight. And so they're doing bits of schoolwork, but not all the time. My daughter is seeing her, talks to her friends on on FaceTime. She's really into TikTok. So every time I talk to my daughter, she's constantly doing these sort of jerky dance moves, which is uh, incredibly annoying. So there's there's moments where we slightly wind each other up. But actually, honestly, I I think what it's done is it's shifted my work-life balance because I'm not commuting for two hours every day. I can't stick around in an office late. So I'm spend if you think that my life is basically work and family instead of it being mainly work and a bit of family it's much more evenly distributed. So I, I I think that bit of it is is really good and as I've said I'm I don't have any friends so there's no downside in 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 that respect. The only thing that I find with all of us I don't know if this is true for, for you too is there's just this lingering cloud of you worry about people you know with the illness and you worry about the economy. You worry about the, 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 the country work, what the, the money position is going to be in, in three months' time, in six months' time. So there is that, that dark cloud, I think, that surrounds everything. But within it, I've had a relatively positive experience.
1: Lara, finally, would you call yourself a confinement convert now? If you had another baby, would you want to do um, it voluntarily?
5: Yeah, I do I mean, I don't think I'd be able to. As I, as I say in the piece, I kind of try to imagine if I could possibly have locked myself away for 40 days and I just don't think I could have done because a I think my friends would have just called me up and said I think I mean I think actually what people would have thought was I was kind of depressed or like not having a good time because that that would probably be what you would assume if someone was behaving like that and obviously after birth lots of women do experience postnatal depression so I think I think it probably would have been quite difficult to do it am I a convert I don't know I have mean, sort of had it forced upon me so I don't know <laughs> if that's quite a conversion but it's it's been lovely and actually quite a lot of our friends who haven't got children yet have said to us that they slightly envy us having the kind of I mean whilst we're not getting much sleep at least we've got some kind of a bit more of a kind of structure to our life um and something to kind of keep us preoccupied with at the moment so we're just yeah we're, 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 we're grateful for it but um I
1: don't know I you have to ask me again if I have another Laura <laughs> and Stig I'll let you get back to your babies then Thanks very much for joining, and thank you for listening. That's it for this week. You can read all the pieces discussed in the issue this week together with playwright James Graham's diary, Douglas Murray on our changing relations with China, and Nigel Fandell on the dying art of obituaries. And if you don't have a subscription to The Spectator, you can get one for free this month if you go to spectator.co.uk forward slash charger, and you'll also get a free Spectator wireless charger. Thanks for listening, and join us again next week.